Okay, we are live. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to all the Roots Academy students, viewers, listeners, and everybody who is attending live at the moment and everybody who is going to watch the recording later on. Uh, today we have with us uh, my very close brother and uh, our friend and teacher and uh, someone you all look up to Ustaz Hamza Georges, we're glad to have him. Salaamu alaykum wa rahmatullah, Ustaz Hamza. Wa alaykum as-salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Sheikh, jazakallah here for having me and giving me the opportunity. No, it's lovely. It's um, definitely our pleasure to have you. Uh, we are, Roots Academy is currently running a course called Islam's Intellectual Foundations, uh, re, re-exploring the uh, the underpinnings of faith uh, in the light of reason, science, yeah, iman as it comes in the scriptures and uh, that was kind of the where this discussion stemmed from um, one thing that comes up uh, when we look at iman is this idea of nurturing this iman kind of it's not something that somebody's just born with it's not something that's static it's something that waxes and wanes uh, wax on wax off as the famous uh, you know phrase goes it's something that has its highs and its lows and um, I thought today's discussion, we could uh, start by looking at, you know, what is the nature of Iman? And what is the nature of Yaqeen, of conviction in an age of skepticism, in an age where about 80% of people in, in Europe are not religious or are agnostic or don't believe in a creator? Um, you know, it, that does rub off sometimes on Muslims and we do kind of become out of touch. We don't see the symbols of Allah around us, the adhan, the, uh, you know, the masses of people praying on Eid. In fact, now we, you know, many people can't even go to the masjid. And we feel that belief, that yaqeen, that conviction, uh, slightly, you know, taking a dip sometimes. We feel that spiritual emptiness uh, on the side of our iman. So that's the first thing I thought we could discuss is what is the nature of belief? Is it blind faith? Or is it purely, you know, propositional, rational argument? There's two kind of, you know, extremes. And and where does iman lie? What is iman about? And and then yaqeen as conviction. What does that mean uh, exactly? So maybe we can start with that. Well, there's a very big questions to unpack. Alhamdulillah, Bismillah, Rahman, Rahim. So let's focus on what is the nature of belief. What's the nature of iman? And you're right. It's not just a set of propositions with a conclusion Because a proposition, especially in philosophical language Is saying something like This is a laptop This is a live stream It's a proposition And it's a reflection of the actual state of affairs Meaning, it's a true proposition The linguistic items that I've uttered Are reflecting uh, Have a meaning that reflect reality That's a proposition It's an abstract proposition because saying that this is a live stream or this is a computer doesn't do much to your life, right? It doesn't, you know, sustain you. It, it doesn't affect the way you relate to yourself and others. It's an abstract proposition. Mm. Islam is not a truth like that. Yes, Islam is true. So when we say the Shahada, there is no deity worthy of worship except the deity, except Allah. And the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his final messenger, his messenger. That's a statement, but it's not like an abstract proposition. Mm-hmm. But rather, it's a, form of, it's a form of knowing that is the truth that changes your heart, changes your tongue, what you say, mm-hmm. and changes how you relate to yourself, how you relate to others, mm-hmm. and how you relate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm-hmm. So it's a truth. It is the truth mm-hmm. that changes your heart, 
changes what you say and how you relate to others, how you relate to yourself and how you relate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In other words, hmm. it changes how you become your hmm. state of being, hmm. which is very different from an abstract proposition. So hmm. yes, can you can you reduce the shahada to some kind of abstract rational points? One would argue maybe because you could rationally prove Allah exists, you could rationally prove that he's worthy of worship, and you can rationally prove that the Prophet wasallam is the final prophet. But as you know, to really be a Muslim and for your shahada to be valid, it's not just uttering an abstract proposition and believing in an abstract way. You have to at least, at least, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Sheikh. No, you have to at least intend to worship Allah. Mm. The least. If you do, if you say the shahada and you say, and you say, for example, I'm never going to worship Allah, mm. then it's going to be very difficult. Mm. Very difficult to call yourself a Muslim, even though you've accepted an abstract kind of an abstract kind of proposition that Islam is true from the perspective of God exists, is worthy of worship, and the Prophet is the final prophet. Because Shaitan, he had that abstract propositional type of Islam, right? Mm. You know, if you were to have a conversation with him and say, does Allah exist? For sure. I had a conversation with him. Is he worthy of worship? For sure. Uh, is the Prophet the final prophet? He'll say for sure. But is he a Muslim? No, because his his type of disbelief is the way he relates, right? Mm. The way he relates to himself and to others and to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is kibr. It was the highest form of arrogance, right? Mm. But from a propositional type of perspective, if you were told to if you were asked Shaytan to write an essay about the truth of the Shahada, he'd probably write a better essay than me and you, right? Mm. But what is his state of being, right? His, How does his he disbelief relate? is his disobedience and his ingratitude at the end of the day, right? As a result of his kibr. Correct? Mm, of course. Because remember, when 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 Allah told him to bow down to, to, to Adam alayhi salam, he was like, I made a fire, he's made of clay, right? I am better. And not only that, his disobedience was to the degree where one would even argue it was a negation of Allah's reality. Meaning mm. Allah is Al Alim, He's the, the all-knowing, the maximally perfect with regards to his knowledge, his Al Hakim, the all-wise. So shaitan is basically saying, you've got it wrong, Allah. That's what he's saying. That stems from a huge type of arrogance, but it can, you can argue, it stems from the fact that he's actually denying the fact that Allah is Al-Alim and Al-Hakim. And mm. if you deny Allah's names and attributes from that perspective, this mm. is a form of associating partners with Allah. It's a form of shirk. Mm. Anyway, the point I'm trying to say here is, Islam is not just abstract propositional uh, mm. Not an abstract proposition, it's more than that. Yes, it's the truth that we can prove, but mm. it's something that is the truth that changes your heart, what you say, and how you relate to yourself, and how you relate to others, and how you relate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it changes your state of being. And what's very interesting here, Sheikh, is that yes, Islam changes your state of being, and Al Ghazali, the 11th century theologian, may Allah have mercy on him, he actually made exactly the same point because he went through that kind of you know, academic, theo-philosophical journey. Mm. And what does he say to us? He says to us, don't think your iman is contingent, is dependent on some type of premises and a conclusion. Someone smarter than you can mm. come along, change your premise, mm. and then he's going to render your conclusion false. What are you going to do? You're going to throw your iman just because some, some smart rhetorician or 
or sophist or whatever the case may be came and you know overwhelmed you with his pseudo intellectual philosophical gymnastics mm -hmm. so al-ghazali continues and says you will have this conviction this yaqeen based on you internalizing the quran and the sunnah so when the Prophet sallallahu says something about dhikr and the results of dhikr or something about salah in the masjid at fajr time and the virtues and the effect of that and so on and so forth when you traverse the spiritual journey following the Quran, following the sunnah you would experience something that no deductive argument can prove wrong That's It's a lived experience yeah. It's a lived experience, which you may argue in the philosophical language is called ph phenomenology. It's mm. a phenomenological experience, meaning phenomenology is really the study of experience, the experience mm. of experience. And this is something that's very important because when we think about yaqeen, we have to understand that it's not a button that you press or a lever that you pull, right? Mm. It's not a button that you press or a lever that you pull. It's there are grades of yaqeen as we know from the Quranic perspective. You have ilm al yaqeen, you have ayn al yaqeen, and haq al yaqeen. So there are levels of yaqeen. Mm. And for example, a nice way of putting ilm al yaqeen is saying, for example, someone that you trust is tell is said to you that your house is on fire. Okay, mm. so this is testimonial knowledge, it's transferred knowledge by an external source, and it's valid by virtue of the fact that you trust him. So this is ilm al-yaqeen, okay? Mm. And you, you could even challenge him. What's my house address? Where did you see it? What, where do I live? And if he affirms those things, then it builds that type of yaqeen that your house is on fire. So that's ilm al-yaqeen. Ayn al-yaqeen is you going to your street and you seeing your house on fire. So you, mm. you are witnessing and visualizing and experiencing via the senses meaning in this case your visual experience your house actually burning hmm. that's an example of ayn al-yaqeen which one would argue could be greater than ilm al-yaqeen different hmm. levels then the last one is you're in your house and it's on fire <laughs> so <laughs> you could you could have no you could be deaf and you could be blind and it's still true yeah so you don't need someone to tell you it's on fire. You don't need to see it's on fire. You are experiencing you mm. living in your house and it's on fire. So there are different levels of yaqeen. So mm -hmm. that is so that would be the nature of iman and nature of yaqeen. And just to summarize, iman is not just an abstract proposition. It's a form of knowing. It is a truth that changes your heart, what you say and how you relate to yourself, how you relate to others, how you relate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It changes your state of being, mm -hmm. your actions in essence. So Iman can be proven intellectually, but it's more than that because as I said, it's about the heart, the tongue and how you relate to others and yourself and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Yaqeen is not a, a button that you press or a lever that you pull and all of a sudden you've taken the blue pill, right? Using a matrix analogy or the red pill, whatever, it, whichever one it was. And now you just have the truth or someone plugged in something in the back of your head and now you know Kung Fu. I know this is a bit old, the Matrix movie, yeah, but in Neo, they put something in the back of his head and they gave him some kind of code and he knew Kung Fu, right? So it's not that, it's not like that. It's it's more of a grade. It's more of a kind of different levels of Yaqeen. And from a Quranic perspective, you will have something like 
ilm al-yaqeen, which is the yaqeen that I mentioned before of knowledge, mm-hmm. knowledge transference, if you like. Then you have ayn al-yaqeen, the yaqeen of experiencing yourself, witnessing it, the visual experience. And then you have the haq al-yaqeen, which is the best way to describe it is, you know, you knowing your house is on fire by virtue of you being in your house and experiencing totally the fact that your house is on fire. So that would be the kind of nature of iman and the nature of yaqeen and it need and it fluctuates and you need to take care of it right you need to preserve it you need to increase it how do you do that yes you could you know read books about theo philosophy and aqidah in an abstract way but generally speaking from my experience and dealing with lots of youth and lots of brothers and the muslim community you need something else you need to do what the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam for us, which is you need to engage with the Book of Allah. You need to do tadabbur of the Quran. Mm. For example, Allah says in the Quran, "Have they not reflected? Do they not reflect upon the Quran, or their locks on their hearts?" Mm. Which you could mirror the meaning here. The more your heart becomes, you, the more tadabbur you do, the more your heart becomes unlocked to mm. receive His guidance and mercy. So, do tadabbur of the Quran. You need to ensure that you're praying your salah. But what kind of salah? You need to try and develop a sense of khushu. Allah says in the Quran in the 23rd chapter, I believe, right? Surah Al-Mu'minun. Surah Al-Mu'minun. Yes. yes. Uh, Allah says, indeed, the, uh, the, 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 the believers are successful. Who? Who? The ones who what? The ones who pray with, I don't know, with the hands up here or down here. Don't get me wrong. These, you know, I'm not. I'm not trying to belittle fiqh positions. I'm trying to say these things are based on ikhtilaf, right? Valid differences. But what is Allah trying to make you focus on the salah? What is the kind of maqsad of salah in a way? What's the the objective? Yes, to worship Allah, but there is something that you need to do. You need to have khushu. You need to have this humility in the prayer. This, this, you're you're in awe of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. You're you're fearing Allah. You're loving Allah. You need to be present in the prayer. So you need to develop that, right? So that's very important. And how do you do that? Well, there's so many things we can unpack concerning that. Because many of the ulama say that your salah starts when you do wudu, right? So are you present when you're doing wudu? Are you really thinking about when the water is washing your limbs, that your sins are actually being cleansed? Are you in the right state of mind? Are you taking your time? Are you being present knowing that you're going to talk to your Lord, that you're going to worship the one who is worthy of worship? So there's a lot of things that we can unpack there. But the point is, focus on your salah. So tadabur of the Qur'an, salah. Your dhikr, so important. The mm. dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It likes, it, it's, like a, it's like a polish. And you know it polishes the heart. And then you could reflect divine guidance and mercy, right? And it, and it would change you, who you are, how you relate to yourself, how you relate to others. Wallahi, I've seen this in my own experience. Even concerning intellectual matters, it was sure. contingent upon my athkar. So I would be maybe in doubt about an answer that was mm. successful enough to convince someone else. But internally, I was still not sure. But later on, I was convinced with it. And then I realized there was an issue concerning what? Concerning my spiritual state. It reminds me, actually, it reminds me of something that, uh, you know, any student of hadith knows that whenever Imam al-Bukhari would pen 
and kind of decide out of the hundreds of thousands of hadith that he was assessing, which one would make it, make the cut into his sahih, his authentic collection, which today is, you know, the most authentic, uh, you know, authentically sourced book of hadith or book of any revealed material after the Quran. Um, he would pray to do wudu and pray to rak'az istikhara, seeking Allah's counsel and guidance. And then he would he would write it down. And it's an interesting thing because when you actually get into the science of verifying reports, historical reports, it's a very academic thing. It's a very surgical process. It's a very intricate process. And you know the people who are involved in that activity, of course, there's their geniuses to another level entirely. So one could think that okay, you could have a German Orientalist could do this equally, perhaps as good as you know a Muslim Imam. But that's not the case because. Um, uh, you know, as we understand, it's not purely an academic thing. You know, even understanding the Quran, how many you know Orientalists know Arabic? Allah says about Fir'aun in the Quran, He had a yaqeen, Deep down, he had a yaqeen. But he denied it out of oppression and out of arrogance. So look what is the end result of those who deny. So there's a really beautiful interplay between one's spirituality, between one's mind, you know, understanding, really appreciating understanding and thinking about the proofs that Allah mentions in the Quran and that's there in the universe around us. Uh, and even kind of our psyche, our mental health, you know, uh, you know how we perceive, you know, what's said to us. And all of this comes together to create Iman. When Allah mentions Iman in the Quran, he tends to mention it in the form of actions or in the form of lived experiences. Yes. You know, like you mentioned, Surah Al-Mu'minun. Indeed, the believers are successful. So who are these believers? Who are these people of Iman? Those who are, you know, finding khushu' who are uh, finding solace in their salah and those who are. And then he mentions the, how they deal with their finances, how they, they deal with their mm -hmm. spouses. That Iman penetrates into their entire life. You know, and perhaps it's understanding Iman one way or another can even impact how we do da'wah or how we try to get other people to have Iman. So if Iman is just is just an argument, is just uh, convincing someone to say the shahada, then the way we do da'wah is our entire calling people to Islam is just about argumentation and debate and convincing. But if Islam is a lived, Iman is a lived experience, then that shahada is just the first step to getting them to experience Iman. One hadith that usually, it really makes me reflect and I would like love your thoughts on this. The Prophet statement, Three things if someone has them, he's tasted the sweetness of Iman. What is what is the sweetness of Iman? What does it mean for Iman to have a, a taste to it? You know? What are your thoughts on, on that hadith? Well, sweetness. I mean I think there's something very important here, right? Mm -hmm. Let's take a little bit of a step back. The step back is this. People need to realize that echoing back on your on your comment on Dawa yeah. is that people may be intellectually convinced about something and they may feel they have intellectual reasons, mm. but even cognitive science today is telling us that's not entirely true. There's a lot of emotional, psychological things at play that people may not even be aware of, including of psychological biases, cognitive biases, social pressures, need to belong, need to feel mm. certain, and so on and so forth. So when we say that certain actions, they would enable us to have the sweetness of Iman. And there are other hadith referring to other actions that sure. you would have sweetness of Iman. For example, mm. from, from what I remember, 
lowering one's gaze, right? Mm -hmm. That that would lead to sweetness of uh, sweetness. Well. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So from that perspective, what this teaches us that your actions affect your iman, right? Mm. And your near and your intention and your ikhlas, your sincerity behind those actions and doing those actions are going to affect your iman. It's, it's very interesting that when you look at the hadith literature and you look at the Quran, it, it and I'm not a scholar, so you correct me. Is there any statement that Neither says if you, if you articulate this intellectual position, you're going to have the sweetness of iman? I mean, I'm not aware I'm not, of such a statement. I've not come across it yet, no. Yes, I'm not aware of one. It may be, yeah? Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting, though? Mm. Isn't that interesting about the nature of Iman and how to cultivate Iman, right? Mm. So what happens in a kind of post-secular context is when someone has doubts, they quickly need to find an answer. Mm. And sometimes I'm like, no, let's examine this properly. Let's be intellectual and spiritually mature. If I give an answer, you're going to get another doubt, right? Yeah. Because yeah. the nature of a shubha, in the plural is shubuhat, is tushbihu. It is something that resembles something else. It's like falsehood dressed up as truth. Falsehood trying to be truth. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Mm. And the nature of, the, of shubuhat is that they try and latch onto your heart like a parasite. If you're going to try and solve one doubt, if you have this this shubha, this shubahat going on, it's not going to satisfy it because something's going on in your heart. It could be that your spiritual state, which is connected to your actions, right? And your actions elevate or, 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 or decrease your iman. There's something wrong there, right? And, but we don't explore that. What do we do? I want an answer. Let me go on Google. Let me ask, uh, I don't know, a famous sheikh or a da'i about... Uh, or the du'a about um, mm. a certain answer. But rarely do we say to them, rarely are we spiritually and intellectually mature enough to say to people, let's find out what's really going on. Mm. Because in a way we have secularized what it means to be human. Allah mm. knows the human better than we know the human. Allah created the human being. The human mm. being is not a... In the philosophy, the philosophy of the mind, you have this idea called functionalism, right? Which mm. is inputs, mental states, and outputs, which is reflective of like a computer system. The human yeah. being is not a functionalist model of the mind that you just put inputs, has a mental state, and gives you outputs. As if we've solved the kind of divine algorithm for guidance and we're inputting in someone's brain and mm. you're going to get the expected results. No, the human being, and this is even in line with cognitive science today. The human being is a dynamic interplay of the ruh, the fitra, the qalb, the aql, and the aql, the intellect is a function of the qalb, the nafs, and there's lots going on. So uh, we need to speak to people in that way. Let me give you some practical examples. So I've mentioned this before. There was some guy who was working for a famous social media company, and he was an apostate. And he came to see us and we're having a conversation. And we started by having a conversation on the philosophy of the mind. Yeah. And this is what I specialized in for my master's and my dissertation in philosophy. I did the hard problem of consciousness. And in I was discussing the issue of can arti artificial intelligence become 
fully conscious. There was an element of that in there to a certain degree. It wasn't the main part of the thesis, but mm-hmm. I had to study some of that stuff. Professor John Searle and so on and so forth. So I would say to him, no, it's not possible. There is a difference between strong AI and weak AI. And I gave him the famous Chinese room experiment and so on and so forth. I don't have to unpack it now. It's too much. Sure. The point is, though, his argument was that artificial intelligence can become fully conscious. And I was trying to explain to him why that can't be the case based on the reasons that I gave him. Uh, throughout the conversation, I then asked him, look, what's your main problem? And then he was like, well, you know, I don't believe in God because the God of Islam, his names and attributes are human, are very human. Hmm. I'm like, hold on a second. Don't you know, nothing, ka as mithil, the example. There's no example like Allah. It's not, there is nothing like Allah. There is nothing like his example. It's like a rhetorical uh, form of hyperbolic intensifying statement to say forget trying to compare anything to Allah you can't even compare with anything as his example yeah to show the transcendent nature of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sure. so it's like we affirm the names and attributes of Allah but we affirm the transcendent nature but we also believe they're maximally perfect without any deficiency and flaw to the highest degree possible <laughs> we have deficient and flawed names and attributes so we're not the same <laughs> but something clicked in my head I noticed a contradiction. I don't. I can't explain the contradiction now because it might take some time. But there was a logical contradiction between his first statement about artificial intelligence and his statement about Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, because he said artificial mm. intelligence can become fully conscious. Right, the thing that human beings create can become fully conscious. He had no problem of moving the logic from A to B, but all of a sudden he had a problem moving the logic from from the other way around. Right without even understanding the kind of nuances behind that. And I, I, I mentioned that to him and he was like, you could tell he was a bit, contra- he, he, he knew that he was caught out with a logical contradiction, right? Obviously we affirm that Allah is transcendent, but I said, if you're happy for human beings to be fully conscious and they make a, a robot and they become fully conscious, you're happy with that. But when Allah creates a human being, you have a problem with a human being uh, being loving and for some reason Allah also having attributes of love as well how's that a problem for you if you mm-hmm. affirmed one uh, you know the, your logical statement your, your first logical statement about artificial intelligence and your and your statement now it shares the same type of underlying logic so why affirm one and reject the other it's a contradiction mm-hmm. and he was like you know so I that for me was an indication that something else was going on something spiritual or traumatic or experiential and lo and behold, I try to give him examples f- concerning my own life. And I s- spoke to him about my father and how, tr- how I rectified my relationship with him. And then I kind of subtly tried to tell him, maybe that's happening to you. And I'm telling you, Sheikh, he stood up. I believed he stood up and he was such a soft kind of spoken young, young man. Mm-hmm. He was angry. How dare you? He started crying. It's as if I pressed a button and something exploded inside him, right? You uncovered what was underneath the mask. I am telling you that's the case. And his mother, because Subur Ahmed was in the room as well. And it was, I, if I remember what, when I saw Subur's face, he was like watching revelation manifest itself in the room. Yeah? Like, you know, the way Allah speaks about what the human being is and all of these things in the sunnah, it was happening in that room, right? Mm-hmm. Alhamdulillah. I, I'm actually grateful to Allah for those type of experiences because it reaffirms this kind of understanding, this approach. 
and yeah, so the so she confirmed that he had issues with his with father figures, right, mm. or with the father figure at least, and that was a, a a crisis point for him. So his so-called intellectual argument really wasn't an argument; mm. something else was happening underneath. And the reason I've mentioned this example is to show to you that it's not just about ab abstract rational arguments. There's always some psychodynamic or psychosocial or social psycho, whatever you want to call it, psychological, spiritual thing going on. Mm -hmm. And this also relates to the concept of Iman because your, your relations, how you relate to others, your actions in the real world, how you act with yourself, how you act with others and how you act with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in terms of the good deeds that you do is going to affect your Iman, which reinforces the point that we mentioned in the beginning about what is Iman. Mm. So... What we need to do is have this mature approach. And what I mean by, by, by mature is that it's in line with the Quran and the Sunnah. It's in line with the holistic understanding of what it means to be a human being and what the nature of Iman is. And not only that, we forgot to talk about a very important metaphysical backdrop. We forgot to talk about the fact that it makes sense of the fitrah. Because in the Islamic tradition, every single human being has an innate disposition, fitrah, fatara. There's something within us that was created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Based on the hadith of Sahih Muslim Based on the Quran chapter 30 verse 30 Adhere to the fitrah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala He created us with, right? We have this natural state And there are two major opinions One major opinion is that there is a form of knowledge in our fitrah To acknowledge Allah and to worship Him And some ulama say also a sense of objective morals Some objective morals But what happens, and I like to use this the analogy of clouding The fitrah becomes Clouded. So our job is to uncloud the fitrah to awaken the truth within. The other view of the fitrah is there is no knowledge in the fitrah. However, it's an affinity that directs you towards the truth. I mm. like to use the analogy of a car. The fitrah is like a car. If the windscreen is clean, it's going to take you to destination truth. But if the windscreen is clouded, it's not going to go. It's going to crash, right? And your life will crash. So mm. our job as du'at and imams and so on and so forth, is to uncloud the fitrah, to allow it to direct itself towards the truth. But here is the point. The fitrah is not only unclouded rational arguments. In actual fact, mm -hmm. it might not be at all. We don't know what part of the fitrah is clouded and what is required. And there could be many things that could be required. In actual fact, things that uncloud the fitrah are not ends, they are means. So you can't mm -hmm. say this is the only way to uncloud the fitrah, give him proof of God and proof of Quran. No, mm -hmm. human beings don't work that way. You might need a few other things. You might need just direct access to revelation. You might mm -hmm. need, for example, getting them to critically think. You might need, for example, them to understand their traumatic or even positive experiences in life. You might need them to just to do worship, to do ibadah. That could mm -hmm. uncloud the fitrah. You might need a combination of both. They might just need a good hug from a Muslim, get some pizza, chill out with them, show them some rahmah. You just don't know. But you will know as you continue your journey in engaging with people and you'll be sensitive to the idea about people's context and fitrah and understand, right, what kind of unclouding is required here. And that takes time and experience. But if you start with this understanding, this correct metaphysical backdrop, the correct lenses to put in your eyes to understand iman, to understand yaqeen, to understand the human being, then that would take you to a different level concerning helping brothers and sisters. And I know, Shaykh, you've had many experiences with, um, with, uh, with students about the issues of doubt. So let me just agitate you so you could uh, give us some beautiful examples in your experience. For example, Shaykh Fahad Tasneem, 
he spoke to like a a a, a teenager or a student he is or she is i don't know what gender they were i think it was a he he was he's uh, like the son of uh, someone who works in silicon valley, valley or something and he spent about 2 or 3 hours with him going through intellectual arguments and so on and so forth at the end he used the verse of the quran he used some quran and then that's it it was job done they came back to islam or the doubts were removed and Sheikh Fahad was like, if only I used the Quran in the beginning, right? Yeah. So the point people's is, needs are different, isn't it? People's needs are very different. Um, exactly. But, if, but Sheikh, if they understand what is Iman and the nature of the fitra and the nature of what is a human being, we're not just a functionist, you know, we're not a functional model of a computerized model, inputs, mental states and outputs, but rather we have this dynamic interplay of the ruh, of the fitra, of the mm -hmm. qalb and so on and so forth. We need mm -hmm. to now become more intellectual and mature to ask mm -hmm. the question, what is the fitra how do i uncloud the fitra what kind of combination of things do i need to use rahma mm. revelation quran maybe rational arguments but in the majority of the cases i'm telling you it's hardly rational arguments from my experience there's something else going on trauma experience they need access to revelation and so on and so forth so give us some of your examples you had some really powerful examples of students uh yeah. give, maybe give us one or two sheikh while i unfold my leg because I'm on the top of the bed because I told you I had technical difficulties. I had no, the lights weren't working. So yes, Ruta Kadim is exclusively privileged to have Saad Hamza Jotis on the top of a bunk bed. Only for Ruta Kadim, alhamdulillah. <laughs> you can't find this anywhere else. My, my hips at the moment, oh my God. While you, ah. while you, un, while you unfold your legs, uh, I'll yes. unfold a couple of incidents, you know, that I've come across <laughs> as <laughs> not trying to be punny there, but as uh, the chaplain at the University of Nottingham and, uh, you know, dealing with Muslim students day in, day out. Um, you know, there's been a couple of incidents where I'd say quite often um, there is kind of, there's a question about, I'm lost, I don't believe in God anymore. And as you uncover that question, uh, you know, there's an underlying trauma, some difficult, some, you know, broken family situation or, and what I found is, of course, people, uh, you know, they have different things, but what's available on the menu to them at the moment is YouTube. So this wasn't around when I was in my teens as, as much as it is now. So, uh, you know, young 20 something year old, you know, they feel like uh, an Iman dip, an Iman low. 30 years ago, and you know, when, you know, perhaps when Sal Hamza was a, a young man himself, of course, he's a young man now, when he was in his teens, perhaps, you know, 20, 30 years ago, if, if you had an Iman dip, you know, if a person had an Iman dip, you didn't really, couldn't really resort to YouTube. I don't believe it was even around that time. You would try to rejuvenate that Iman either through the company of the righteous or being in environments like the masjid, the environments that revive that, you know, that purpose and that objective and that, you know, that spiritual inclination within you or through recitation of the Qur'an, or performing adhkar, etc, etc. And usually it's the community or the company that kind of helps revive that, that Iman. Today, you have, you know, the masjids are closed. The first port of call is the internet. They go onto YouTube, and the first set of suggestions are debates, arguments, refutations. It's, it's such a toxic culture that it plunges them further and further into questioning and doubt and despair. And in this entire time, they don't get to taste that sweetness. So like in this particular person, I even ask, I, you know, one, one particular case, for example, I asked this person, uh, you know, have you ever done dhikr before? They said, no, not really. Not other than like what my parents taught me in my childhood. So I asked them to close their eyes. Don't worry, I didn't do anything. I just said, close your eyes. You both closed their eyes. And I began to recite some of the adhkar of the morning and evening that the Prophet would, uh, وسلم, would recite in the morning and evening. 
So we just recited one of them. Hasbi Allahu. Allah is sufficient for me. La ilaha illahu. There's none worthy of my worship, my attention, my devotion except him. Alayhi tawakkaltu. I rely fully upon him. And he is a master of the glorious throne. We recited it seven times. Then I asked him, just open your eyes. How are you feeling? He goes, relieved. I feel, you know, fulfilled. I feel reconnected to Allah. I said, do you know that if you just did this every morning and evening, your, your, your sine wave, your ups and downs of Iman would be a lot more damped. There'd be a lot more, you know, you'd you'd have that regular routine of connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he's like, I don't, he said to me, I don't need the answer now. Like, it's a question, but I know I'll get to the answer eventually, but I don't feel as lost as I was. And it reminds you of the hadith of the Prophet sallam when, you know, somebody asked him about having a doubt or wondering who created Allah. He told him, just reassure yourself, to billahi wa I believe in Allah and his messenger. And of course, his response was specific to that man. Doesn't mean every single case all you need to do is just reassure yourself. But there's various things. And um, perhaps we are in the era where people enjoy experiences. So people like to go on spiritual retreats to Turkey and Morocco and Spain. But you can have a spiritual experience right here, right now, by reciting Ayatul Kursi and reflecting on the greatness of Allah. You can have a, a spiritual experience by opening your window and just looking at the beauty of God's creation, the flawless sky end to end, and the beauty of the water cycle. You can have a spiritual experience, but people are not interested in experiences. They're interested in a content stream. They're interested in logging into the Insta Instagram account and finding a reminder. So there's like a an over kind of, there's an influx of inspiration, motivation, reminders, but there's no experience. Whereas in the old days, you would get an inspiration or a motivational reminder once a week, as Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu says, كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمَ يَتَخَلَّلُنَا بِالْمَوْعِضَةِ The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa would space out his reminders. He wouldn't do it every day. Because when he was asked, can you teach us? He used to teach his students every Thursday. And when he was asked, can you do it more often, two or three times a week? He said, no, let it be once a week. Because the Prophet ﷺ would remind us every so often so that the hearts don't get bored, desensitized to the reminder. So now there's loads of reminders, arguments, refutations, but there's zero experiences. That's what my kind of my little reading from the breadth of people I've seen and from the few experiences I've mentioned. Um, but I don't, know, I don't know what your take is on that. Yeah, no, we're totally in tune with this. I totally agree with you 100%. That's why I like enjoying speaking to you, Sheikh, and, and doing things like this with you, because unfortunately, this is not being said. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. And I believe we have secularized the dawah from that perspective. We have secularized mm -hmm. te the teaching of Islam, mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, we've have adopted this kind of post-secular, you know, rationalist or even skeptic philosophical outlook on what it means to have belief and iman and how to transform yourself. But Islam mm. is a totally different paradigm. It's a unique paradigm. It's a true paradigm. And when you put these things, these things into practice, as I said, when I echoing Al-Ghazali, you're going to see the, the experience that you're going to have is totally in tune with your innate nature and it satisfies your mind and it liberates your heart. What's very interesting, I don't want to give too much information, but I've been having a mentoring course. So what we do, we have mentorship calls or consultation meetings with people who have left Islam or even with du'at uh, who need help or development. It's a range of people, people who have doubts. There's one particular person. He basically 
had a range of questions concerning slavery, concerning the concept of hellfire, things to do with science, relating to the philosophy of science. Now, obviously, we could find really good answers to these questions. But I think the last quote we had, alhamdulillah, he said, I'm, you know, um, he's basically moving on with Islam now. He's praying um, in, in you know, more regular ways. So alhamdulillah, it was good news. He raised something very powerful to me, which I'm going to try and think about and unpack. He made a really beautiful point, which really echoed what Al-Ghazali said. He was basically saying, from what I remember, it was only a few days ago, I think, but he, he said to me, I'm going to focus on my experiences. That's what he said. Mm-hmm. Something like that. He said, I'm going to fo- focus on my experience because when I pray, it's a different kind of reality, he was saying. Something good happens to him. When I don't pray, when I'm not connected to Allah, and it, was, it, 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 wasn't, it, it wasn't a blind faith thing. Mm. It was more of he admitted that he has epistemic limitations. I'm not going to know everything. Mm. Because Hamza, when I speak to you, you know, I, I, I get convinced. I see the different perspective kind of thing. When I'm on my own, Yanni, from what I remember, he was basically saying that, you know, he has these doubts, whatever the case may be. So he was, he was saying, I'm not as smart as other people. Hmm. There's always going to be smarter people than me. But what stands the test of time? What, what transcends all of this stuff is his experience with Salah and connecting Salah. with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Hmm. And that, for me, was very, very powerful. Very powerful. Which goes to show what we've been talking about concerning Iman and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, now, obviously, I'm paraphrasing a conversation I had with him because I don't know exactly what for words. So I don't want to be. Con- I don't want to misquote him or, you know, uh, come across as I'm lying. But the essence of the conversation was based on that, and that was a really powerful thing for me because are we setting up our youth for a fall? by expecting them to be able to prove every philosophical nuance of Islam? Hmm. Are we expecting everyone to be like, I don't know, who's a famous debater? Are we expecting everyone to be like Abdullah Andalusi, for example, right? Yeah. You know, I think he's one of the best guys we have concerning his arguments sometimes. I haven't seen everything. I haven't watched all his debates, but the recent one he had in Oxford was beautiful. It was spiritual as well. He connected to Allah's names and attributes and his akhlaq and adab is very stoic. You know, he's, he's not immature. He's, he's one of the great guys that we have, right? May Allah preserve him and protect him and increase him. Not everyone's going to be like that. Not everyone's going to have the intellect of, of, uh, of Abdullah or, you know, Ahmed Didat or well, the greats that we know of, right? Are we... But but that's what we're doing though. We're creating an environment where we're expecting everyone to know all of these kind of theophilosophical nuances. Mm. And I think we're setting up people for a fool. Mm, that's a good point. And it's a subtle point, we, actually. Yeah, because you know what we need you're fine, we need to try and develop them so they could be able to articulate themselves, but to what degree? I mean, mm. look, I've started I'm, I'm on my third postgrad in philosophy, right? I'm a recent student now. I'm only saying that just to show that I've got some kind of experience, yeah? And let me tell you something. You may see things online about the philosophy of the mind. Hmm. And someone's come with a great thread on Twitter. 
He's read a couple of books or something. And wow, he's got the answers. But when you go into academia, there are papers that you have not read and haven't addressed. Mm. And there are issues in this particular domain of philosophical knowledge that are way beyond people's understanding. And they're so nuanced. And yet they may be refutations of your point, but you would never be aware. Mm. Why am I raising this point? I'm raising this point because are we expecting everyone to have that type of knowledge? Are we saying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is unjust, that he requires every human being to have this kind of, you know, super theophilosophical knowledge and be up to date with all the trends in philosophy and science and the philosophy of science? Come on, this is ridiculous. Mm. Yes, we should have our du'at and leaders, some of them to be specialists, to defend the deem intellectually. We should be able to articulate ourselves in an intellectual and academic manner in the appropriate context and setting. However... Mm. The general rule to be for the youth and the students mm. is to be, number one, learn your deen from a principal perspective. So your aqidah derived from the Quran and the Sunnah and the, and the understanding of the scholars based on principles that are timeless, that you understand. But fundamentally, you need to be engaged in a spiritual practice. And I don't use this term as some kind of you know, new age Islam. I'm talking about orthodox, traditional Islam. You're not referring to meditation, are you, Hamza? No, of course not, yeah. But there's nothing wrong with Tadabur. There's nothing wrong with contemplation. Of like course. Professor Malik Badri, he passed away recently. May Allah have mercy him. on him. Yes. Yeah, I met him. He was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful sheikh. He wrote a book, uh, Contemplation, a Psycho-Spiritual Study, and he quoted um, the, the Salaf, the pious masters and predecessors on contemplation, and he considered it a neglected ibadah. It is, right. it is a neglected yeah. ibadah. So contemplation sure. and uh, tafakkur and tadabbur and so on and so forth are yeah. fundamental to awaken the fitra to increase your iman for sure. However, for the sure. point I'm trying to say is that mm. we need to teach our youth the importance of how to build the iman from this perspective, which is yes, understand your aqidah, have your proofs and evidences, have all the principles in place. But that's but a starting most, point. It's not yes, the end. The most important thing, and I would consider this as a, as a default now, Concerning the environment of the social media, this is now a default position every Muslim should strive to be in, which is they have to be connected to the Quran, connected to Salah. They have to be connected to ulama or students of knowledge to help them and guide them. They have to, for example, engage in dhikr, in dua, in recitation of the Quran, in tadabbur of the Quran. Even, as you taught me, the three pillars of da'wah, activism, knowledge, Action and ibadah, right? Based on the ayat in the Quran, iqra, right? Yeah. Read, and then, then arise and warn, mm-hmm. and then pray yeah, a little in the night, or, yeah. or pray in the light in the in, in, in the night. The tahajjud prayer, the connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because all these three pillars are essential. And if one is missing, then your whole da'wah and your whole kind of whether it's online or offline activism, it's going to crumble because you need these pillars in order for you to stay upright. If one of them are, are not there, they're missing. And you see this in people's lives. Someone could be great on the iqra aspect, on the aspect of having lots of knowledge. But the connection with Allah is not as strong, right? Mm-hmm. Is not as strong. And they may be very, very active, but because that pillar is missing, you mm-hmm. see it manifested in on their tongues and how they act. And it's an imbalance. Yeah. yeah, it's an imbalance. It's an imbalance. Well, if you don't have a if a pillar is missing, you're gonna fall at some point. 
Yeah, no, um, it, so, that's really a subtle point. Good point there. Yeah, I, I was going to say that. I, I was going to say that as we, uh, just in the interest of time, there's one more thing I wanted to, to ask you about, which is uh, nurturing conviction in children. You know, these are you know we're talking about children who are growing up, growing up in a multicultural, multi-faith society, who are going to be hearing about Christmas and Halloween and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, who are in the, for example, you know, children growing up in the West. You know, how does a parent talk to their child about Iman, about Allah? How is it something you know in terms of daily act? Is in terms of you know where does it go? Because a child has this innocent fitra. There's no, there's a very little, um, you know, blur and kind of out of focus or anything covering that fitra it, it's there's a purity there that can be nurtured if nurtured by a parent well and if kind of done yes. in an intelligent conscious way so where does it start because you're mashallah you've got your children you know we just heard you calling out Ilyas before before we started you know in your experience as well as you know in general from what you know what are principles that muslim parents should take especially in this age whether it's you know young children or whether it's teens who have questions, uh, what are some pitfalls you've seen, or what are some things that can be done to nurture that iman and nurture that yaqeen? Yes, so those are very important questions. So obviously, what I'm saying now, I'm not claiming to be the ideal manifestation of this because I'm still struggling as a parent, like all parents struggle, and it's it's a, a journey. So I don't want anyone thinking Hamza's got all these things in place, his kids must be super. No, no at all, right? May Allah help us all and make it easy um, for everybody it, um, is a, um, it is a struggle of course now i think the main thing we have to understand is that before you say anything you have to be a manifestation of islam at home right allah so if you want to show why allah is worthy of worship then you need to worship allah in the way that is befitting of someone who has iman or someone who wants to come really close to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so if you treat ibadah as some kind of chore or tick box exercise, it's rushed, it's like a necessary evil of your day, then with all due respect, that's going to rub off on your children, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very important to be that which we want our children to be become, right? Because children don't listen. They just don't listen, frankly. They listen with their eyes, mm -hmm. right? It's what they see. And interestingly, there are studies, or at least one study I'm aware of, that talks about the kind of hypocrisy, religious hypocrisy of parents. And that could lead to the disbelief in their children because they don't see at home, right? They get taught one thing, but they're not seeing at home. So are you backbiting at home? Are you being, are you breaking Islamic principles and values? Are you, are you worshiping Allah, you know, as if your relationship on him is on a thin thread? You know, mm. stuff like that. I'm not saying that you have to be perfect, but sure. there, there should be this kind of striving. If you fail, then do Tawbah and keep on striving, keep on striving, keep on moving. And then children will see that in your personality. They'll see that in your behavior that you are trying to get improved. You're trying to get closer to Allah. You are striving and so on and so forth. So you have to be a reflection, number one. Sure. The second thing you need to do is you need to focus on, in my view, on the two main important things of of, of of Iman from that perspective Talk to them why Allah is worthy of worship Right You know A lot of our teaching is based on Do's and don'ts Haram and halal I think mm. the children learn that word Before most other words Right I think yes the children no. learn halal, I think they learn halal and haram Before they know some names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so I'm not saying I'm not saying they shouldn't Of course they should know the halal and the haram But how many times is halal and haram mentioned in the sunnah And in the Quran 
Yes, or rather even the, the graduality of the, you know, the, what were the priorities in the prophetic da'wah is that, you know, the initial first 13 years in Mecca were mainly focused on beliefs and on experiences. The Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't burden them with too many legislations or too many laws. However, later on when they were an established Muslim community in Medina, then the five salawat and, you know, all of the other well, alcohol being well, fully haram, etc. came on. Yeah, even it wasn't articulated in a halal haram sense. Take, for example, Psalm, Surah Al-Baqarah. Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, kutiba alaykum kama kutiba lalakum la'alakum tattakoon. All who have believed. Allah is describing you as people of amana, people of a trust between yourself and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's elevating you in the discourse. All you who have believed. Kutiba alaykum usiyam. Kutiba is in the passive form. Fast has been prescribed for you. It's not saying, you know, it's not a harsh type of description. It's like, it's in the passive form. Like it was prescribed before you, meaning it's easy. Ummah have done it before. Religious And it's worked. And it's uh, and it's, it was good for them. Like, you know, when you go to the gym and you see someone bench 170 kilos, and they're the, same weight. <laughs> they're the same weight as you. And you got two arms and two legs just like him. Sure. So it encourages you. You can do it too, right? So yeah, sure, Allah sure. is saying it's been happening before. And then what does Allah say? In order for you to have God consciousness, taqwa, mm. which leads to divine bliss in paradise, closeness with Allah. This is a legal ruling. If you think about it, you must fast. <laughs> but look at the way Allah couches the language in a psycholinguistic way psycho spiritual way the outward is tied to the inward the, yeah. the ruling is tied to something imani right something yeah, so what we need to do is when we teach our children that we need to do that as well so do our children know why Allah is worthy of worship our primary goal in at home is for children to know who is Allah why is he worthy of worship hmm. is he really al-wudud the loving, is he Ar-Rahman? Is he Al-Hakim, the wise? And so on and so forth. What does this mean? What does his names and attributes mean in my life? Why is Allah worthy of extensive praise? Hmm. Why must I supplicate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Hmm. Who is behind everything? Which reminds me of what Ilyas was saying to me once. He was talking about, he liked, there was a phase that he really liked dogs. And he's like, Baba, I want a dog. I said, you, you know, but you can't have dogs in the house. You know, you could have it for uh, protection or you could have it for 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 hunting, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think at that point when we were having a conversation, it was, it was, I don't remember too much about the conversation, but I said something like, um, he said, I want it for, for a protection, a guard dog. Mm. And I said, yeah, but Allah will protect you. He said, yeah, oh. but the dog, the dog is the means. Allah Akbar. Yeah, yeah. Scholarly child. I think he was only six or seven when he said that to me. Mashallah. So yeah, the dog is the means. The, the, the reason I'm mentioning this is to show that it's very important to teach our children Allah is behind everything concerning your success and your downfall. Allah mm. is behind everything concerning your elevation or your degradation. Allah is the one. So connect to Him, you know. Behind everything. Is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everything happens in the universe because of his irada and his qudra, because of his will and his power. And his irada, his will is connected to who he is, meaning he is al-Rahman, he is al-Qudus, he is al-Bar, the source of all goodness. So when Allah chooses something for you, no one could choose anything better and you have to believe in that. 
So there's those elements, is the elements of why Allah is worthy of worship. Why must I obey Allah? Hmm. Because he's the ultimate authority. He knows. He has the totality of knowledge and wisdom. Allah has and the picture. I think that particular question is important, Hassan Hamza, because children are going to school, teenagers, whatever, and there are a lot of things that we can't do that everybody else can. It's a free-for-all for everybody else. And for us, you know, sometimes, you know, a growing child might feel there's a restriction on them, right? So why do I have to be obedient? Why why, why are there things that are haram, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, do you think, you know, you know, children do ask their parents questions and growing up, they, they do tend to come to them. And how can a parent, if a parent realizes my children, my child's asking me questions that I don't know the answers of, uh, you know, what do you think a parent should do in that situation? Well, that's a very good point because, so just to summarize what we've just said, Sorry, focus ahead. on why Allah is worthy of worship. Focus on the why and the do's and don'ts, of course, but connect it to Allah. Why he's worthy of worship, why he's worthy of our obedience, of our love, why he should be known, why we must single out and direct all in internal and external acts of worship to Allah alone. Focus on that. And focus on the Prophet وسلم, why he must be loved and obeyed as well. Because obeying the Prophet is like obeying Allah. Allah because, because Allah tells us. And there is a direct connection between the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Why? Because the only way you can connect to Allah is through the Prophet That's the only way. How are you going to pray salah? How are you going to do dhikr? How are you going to do acts of ibadah? How are you going to fulfill your raison d'etre, your fundamental reason for it, for being, for existence, which is worshipping Allah? You can't go to the Quran for that alone. So the Quran tells you what to do, the Sunnah tells you how to do it. So you have to follow the, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And it's interesting that Allah says in the Quran to the Prophet sallallahu Say, if you love Allah, then follow me, meaning follow Muhammad sallallahu And Allah will love you and forgive your sins. There is a direct connection between following the beloved Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and worshipping Allah, which is your fundamental basis of your existence, which is to know Allah, to love Allah, to obey Him, and to direct all acts of worship to Him alone. So with regards to the questions, and this is a very interesting point, and I've tried to use this, and I think it works. Mm. Don't answer the questions first. So I remember my son asking me a question, and it was actually a question about creed. It was, how do we know God exists? How do we know the Quran is from Allah? So because he's been in an environment that he's picked up things, right? Mm. Maybe he's attended one of my talks or he's had haqa, whatever the case may be, right? I, I asked him, if you had to ask Ilyas yourself or if you had to ask yourself this question, what would you say to him? So it takes him outside of himself and he puts himself in a position of protecting, protecting his own self. So he's like now become paternalistic over his own being. So he's looking at himself saying, okay, well, I need to help this guy. And I'm telling you, you get them, you get the answers from them. And it's the most empowering process. Mm. You may need to probe slightly, mm. but once you start asking questions and probing, they give you the answer. See, and then you say, see, you already had the answer. And that is such a powerful, empowering position. So even if they don't know the answer and they're trying to get an answer, you say, look, let me ask you a question. If this and this and this, could this happen? No, of course not. Okay, so what does this mean? Ah, so you, you've got this kind of almost Socratic method. Forget Socrates. It's a Quranic method. Allah even uses this method for us in the Quran. For example, in chapter 52, verses 35 to 36. Did you come from nothing? Did you create yourself? 
Did you create the heavens and the earth? Mm. Yes, this could be a deep philosophical universal argument, but the primary function of these ayat is to awaken the fitrah. There's, there's spiritual epistemic tools. They awaken the fitrah. So if you ask questions like that and you get them on that journey, they will give you the answers based on their fitrah and their understanding. Mm. Even if they don't have the ilm, by virtue of asking them a question and give them scenarios and getting them to think, they would end up with having the answer. And then you say, you got it. I told you you had it. You didn't. You need to ask me the question in the first place. I find that as a very powerful approach of empowering children. It's very powerful. Getting them to think, but not doing it in a way that creates a spiritual or intellectual vacuum, but you're doing it in a way that empowers them and uplifts them and develops them. Especially as they get older. You know, a six, seven, eight. Well, you'd be surprised, honestly, when they're six and seven, they're very, very smart, honestly. No, definitely, so, of course. I'm telling you, uh, some uh, I've learned a lot from the kids, yeah? They're, like, smart. Yeah. It's like, whoa, where did that come from, right? You know, they say so, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I suppose so. Um, I mean, I mean, so what, what I would say here is, is use that approach, but you should also... Get them to un- the most important thing that you should have with your children really is try your best to have an open and loving relationship. Mm. I'm not saying you know be their best friends all the time because sometimes you have to be authoritarian. No, sorry, authoritative. Authoritarian yes. is being a dictator. Do you think it's possible for you know some of the people you've spoken to who are adults now who wanted to want to leave Islam or see, see Islam as some evil source of suffering? Do you think that sometimes some of those experiences could be traced back to the way a religious parent 100%. dealt with them? Hundred percent. I was in my town like a few years ago, and someone saw my Lawrence Krauss debate. Said, "Oh, it was a good debate or something." He said, "But I'm still an atheist." And I said to him, "How's your parents?" I'm telling you, he spoke to me for about ten minutes or something talking about the kind of dark upbringing, religious upbringing that he had. Mm. It's as if I read him straight away. I didn't want to go into any intellectual arguments. I said, how's your mom and dad? I, I literally saw in his face. Yeah, honestly. So uh, the, the kind of really negative type of parenting is what you call authoritarian, which you're a dictator. It's like working in the army. Do this, do that. No praise, no development, no empowerment, not much rahmah and love. Then you have the other extreme, which is permissive style of parenting. The permissive style is do what you want. So you teach the child to obey their ego, obey their shahawat, the blaming of desires. They do whatever they want. Destructive. The best approach, which is in line with the son of the Prophet, is called authoritative. So my dad used to describe it quite well, actually. He said you'd have like the law. So you say it's like a box. So the boundary is the law. And if the, within that boundary, it's just full love. If they come outside, you bring them back in. And sometimes you may have to be assertive. You're an authority figure, right? Someone to look up to. And you discipline, but within balance. But within the law, if you like, within the kind of halal and haram, there's lots of love. There's forbearance. There's forgiveness. There's, you know, this beautiful relationship with discipline at the same time. But it's not authoritarian like you're in the TA, right? Mm. And that's the, that's the type of balance, the type of parenting that we should have. And unfortunately, and, you know, I don't want to seem as being against any particular culture, but from my experiences, and there's a hell of a lot of them, um, the Asian subcontinent community, you know, the old school parenting has been extremely problematic and it has damaged a lot of our youth. And one would argue it could have facilitated their kind of disengagement with the Islamic tradition. Now, you know, and, and that's why it's very important for ha- for us to have um, an adherence of the, to the sunnah in terms of parenting, you know, 
Do you think that not, so Hamza parents are uh, very disengaged or we kind of outsource like secular education, school, religious education, maktab, madrasa? We kind of just do the picking and dropping. Do you feel like there's that kind of perception with a lot of with some parents? Well, I think it's because we live in a kind of capitalist, materialistic society. So always on the go, always on the yeah, go. Yeah, always on the go. You want to make money. Like even in religious families, unfortunately, when you have yeah. religious folk, they have jilbab, hijab, beard, thobe. They mm. look the part. They pray, you know, all of this stuff. Mm. Um, and yet at home, the moral priorities, subconsciously, even consciously, mm. are getting the house, getting the right looking wife and getting a really good job. Mm. Mm. Even though there's Salah and there's Ramadan and there's spirituality at home, that's not always enough. It's about how do you morally prioritize at home. Mm. So if you're, you've got more intensity concerning the material stuff, more intensity concerning how people, what people think about you, more intensity about how you look, more intensity about your wealth. Mm. And you have lesser intensity concerning the most fundamental things in our tradition, like Salah and connecting with Allah and so on and so forth. Mm. Even though you may have the spiritual stuff on a really high level, but if the other stuff is a bit higher and it's prioritized as higher just by virtue of your action and your resources, mm. it's going to damage children because they won't be able to, they won't be able to reconcile that properly. And mm. unfortunately, um, many practicing parents are being affected by the society mm. and, and they get so worried. Oh my God, why is my child? Why have they left Islam? Well, because you didn't prioritize Islam. You mm. may have prayed five times a day. You may have got them to become hafiz of Quran. You may have got them to do all the stuff they need to do to be a good Muslim. But the other stuff that was happening in their life and in your lives seemed to be a bigger priority, like getting the next house, getting a bigger house, having a 50,000 pound wedding, um, mm. you know, having a big car, becoming the doctor, the engineer. If you mm. fail your exam, you get more in trouble than missing Fajr. Mm. Well, report your soul. Report your soul with all mm. due respect. Oh, but I'm practicing. We follow the sunnah. Yeah, but do you think following the sunnah is just praying and fasting and all that stuff? Following the sunnah is also prioritizing the sunnah and Islam over everything else. Mm. We don't do that. And we judge our children if they didn't get the A's, if they didn't become the doctor and so on and so forth. The but amount yeah, of um, pressure I've seen on like eight, nine, ten-year-olds to prepare for their 11-plus grammar school entrance exams is nowhere near like how traumatized a child can get in that process from the pressure of parents in comparison to do we actually care i'm not talking about hifdul quran but do we actually worry or get concerned so much about their afterlife in those younger years and not the do's and don'ts but i suppose uh, having those conversations ha you know having a loving relationship with them discussing those deeper concepts openly talking about allah it's, it's not a taboo thing it's something that we all talk about at home when we remember allah yeah. as a family Check. The parents should make it very clear at home mm. that nothing is more important than Allah and His Messenger, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Nothing is more important than fulfilling your purpose in life. If you failed your exam after trying your best, don't worry. Mm. Allah's going to ask you in the day of judgment about that exam. Well, He definitely want to ask you in the grave. That's for sure. That's not one of the first three questions. Correct mm. me, Sheikh, if I'm wrong. No, it's definitely is, not on the list. Are the <laughs> angels going to ask? The, are the first three questions in the grave going to be why did you fail your chemistry exam? Mm, I mean, let's just be honest. <laughs> yeah. That's my whole point. So yeah. I'm not trying to belittle learning, of course. 
But if you're going to encourage them to learn and be great, it has to be connected to why Allah is worthy of worship. Mm. Because why do you want a doctor for? If someone becomes a doctor and then gets a God complex and thinks that it's all him and has a sense of ujub and has a spiritual disease that he's the one who's healing people and it's not Allah, is he going to get the reward of saving a life is like saving the whole of humanity? No. Mm, your point. things have to be connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and why he's worthy of worship and your purpose in life. So yes, become a doctor, become a scientist, become a politician, whatever you want to do, but do it, that's, do it in a way that's connected to your ultimate purpose in life because purpose in life and purpose of life are not disconnected in the Islamic tradition. Mm. In atheism it is, in philosophical naturalism, they don't believe in a purpose of life because it's all based on blind, non-conscious physical processes, but they say there's a purpose in life, I could make things up for myself, which is like a delusion, let's pretend to have purpose. They, so. they, they separate the two. But in Islam, what you want to do in your life has to be connected with the purpose of your life, which is that you're here to worship Allah. Okay. So. I'm not belittling those things, but they have to be done in that context, right? And uh, yeah, so that's why I say we may come across as very practicing, but we have morally sec. We we have we've got a a secular moral priority at home, yeah. From the that's perspective really of you know the, uh, the intensity and the efforts concerning grades and and a career, mm-hmm. it just psychologically is far more. Uh, resource intensive than, and and even uh, forms the identity of the growing adult than salah, right? Very true. But so, you know, and on that on that point of salah, we are eating into the time of maghrib salah, so we should probably yes. get going. Opportunity, um, Sheikh. Let's do this again. There's lots to unpack. Definitely. May Allah bless you. May Allah bless you as well. And I just wanted to end by reminding our viewers on that topic of parenting of the ayah. Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu qu anfusakum wa ahlikum nara wa quduhan nasu wal hijara. O believers, save you and your families from the fire. Its fuel is human beings and stones. May Allah protect us and our families from the fire and make us of those who are active parents mm-hmm. and who nurture iman and yaqeen within ourselves and uh, and within our children. Jazakumullah khair once again, Ustad Hamza, for joining us, our listeners for joining us. Uh, honestly, pleasure and a lovely discussion. And I hope all of us find benefit and practically act on what we've learned. That's the most important thing. Uh, and inshallah ta'ala, with that, we will we'll end this discussion. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta nasakhfiruk wa natubu alaik. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum wa